Okay, thanks for coming out on a sunny night. Hopefully it'll do you good. Um, just um, a couple of things for people watching online, uh, either watching or listening. Um, I'll try and remember to, uh, to explain anything that we write that obviously can't be seen. Um, also, some people ask from... Um, uh, last time we were together in here about, uh, we said some things about our Salt Lake journey, but what we did was we cut off the recording so it wasn't broadcast. And some people said, oh, you know, we missed that because, you know, we did it because we, um, there were some things we wanted to keep private and personal <clears throat> in the context of the house. But um, uh, just, just to overrun on that, what we were saying particularly was that some of the clarity that we have on our trip in Salt Lake seems to be the issue that... I related to the story of um, uh, <clears throat> the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts who was met by Philip the evangelist in the desert as he was riding back to Ethiopia and the, um, the, crazy, uh, the crazy odds against that happening, that intersection in a desert with somebody on a chariot and you walking and you, you actually... And, um, <clears throat> but the fact that Philip had pulled, was pulled away from what was happening in Samaria, which was pretty successful in terms of its ongoing uh, growth, uh, simply because of the value of this man in the desert, who we don't know the ongoing story, but I mean, some would say that he went back to Ethiopia and started a revival in Ethiopia and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. All I know is that God valued this guy whose experience of the church had not been very positive. Um, and so... Um, what we shared with you is that it seems to be that some of that is emerging, if not all of that is emerging in our little jaunt in uh, Salt Lake City. What was fascinating is that, you know, we, uh, we said how these particular people had finished up there who knew of us and we cross-connected. Uh, and uh, no sooner had we I shared what I shared than I got an email last week from another couple who we have not seen for several years. We saw them once in Bellingham, Washington, because they came to listen to me speak and Chris. Uh, and we knew the guy from <clears throat> Scotts Bluff back in 86, but we've seen them that one time since, um, <clears throat> since 1986. <clears throat> but, um, you know, they've, they've had some follow-up with, with what we're teaching and what we're saying. And so I get this email out of the blue saying, um, you know, are you going to be in Salt Lake in the first couple of weeks in August? Because we're thinking of of taking a couple of weeks and going over there. Uh, I had no real reason to do it and, you know, kind of, but it's like another one of those intersections. They live way up in the northwest, um, but it's like for some reason Salt Lake is the desert place where these things are intersecting. So this was very random and, and um, uh, certainly we had no contact, so there's no way we could have provoked this to happen. But it just seems to be happening that people are contacted and you think, well, you know, why there? Well, I don't know. You know, why did Philip have to meet the Ethiopian where he did? Why didn't God say to the Ethiopian, go to Samaria and look for Philip? But he didn't. Um, and I think some of this is actually about a real big lesson to me, which is um, something probably that I've, I've, you know, there are things you know, but you don't really know them. You know what I mean? You, you kind of know it's a principle, um, but you don't know it fully. And, and that is the value of individuals to God and how important individuals are in the purpose of, of God restoring all things. And of course, I told the, the question that I felt God had asked of me while we were in Salt Lake was, 
how much would you invest and how much would the church invest if you're planting another church in Salt Lake? Of which my answer was, well, you know, whatever it would take, whatever was necessary. And then, of course, the following question was, but how much would you invest for one person? For, for, for just a handful of individuals, what would you invest in that? And you start to think, oh, you know, if you are proposing that as a, as a thing, you know, let's take an apartment here and let's do this for these two or three individuals, you'd think, oh, I'm not so sure about that. Um, but what really challenged me is because we value, we value structure and perceive success in size over actually individual people and the journey of their lives. But I think God is, is showing some people that they are, they are worth enough for God to send us to intersect with them in, in this desert place so that they can find life. Now, it might lead to something else. There might be something bigger. There might be a church springs out of it. I don't know. Uh, it's just we're just being obedient. But what's amazing is that, that God is sending people to us there. So, uh, yeah, so that, that was part for those who, who were interested, who didn't get to hear that last time. That's part of our work and, and, and mission, and we're back there in four weeks' time, and, you know, we'll be picking up again on, uh, on a lot of this stuff. So, so there you go. So let's just, Lord, just let our hearts be open tonight. Help us to uh, get to where we need to get in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me, let me also say, as we talk about what I want to talk about tonight, that one of our uh, ethoses of the house is that we'd rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And um, increasingly so, I find there are some things now that I study and read that 10, 15, 20 years ago, I could have, I could have answered without even two thoughts in the sense that I knew what the thing was, and I knew what was supposed to be said, I knew where it was supposed to lead, and the truth is, because of where we were, most people listening to that would have known exactly what that meant. But, you know, if, if you say to somebody now, put God first in your life, it's like, what, what does that mean? You know, and I have to think, what did that mean for me? For me, sometimes it meant, it meant keeping the rules and being a good boy and making sure I attended every meeting in the church. And, uh, you know, you sung and had... There were things that, that were boxes that I ticked that, that to me were about putting God first. But I, I don't know whether those were just acts that I performed to convince myself that I was putting God first when in the essence of actually the whole of my life, my, my interaction with the world, my interaction with people, my, my, my growth, my ambitions, I would have to question, was I putting God first? If I was, to what degree and to what percentage? Now, I don't think we measure that by how many meetings we attend or how many Bible verses we can quote, but I think our freedom has also sent us the other way that some people think it's got nothing to do with that. When actually... It like does have something to do with that in the same way that you could say a marriage is not just about a couple being in the same house. You know, you can still be married and not in the same house. Yes, you can, but it doesn't constitute for the elements that make for a good marriage. So if we're part of community and part of a, a purpose, there are some things that we've got to be careful. Our freedom doesn't release us to do which are actually unhelpful and, and unhealthy. So anyway, I, I came across this... Um, uh, two or three weeks ago, and I just have not been able to get it out of my head. 
And, um, you know, Chris was going to bring something tonight, but I said, I need to get this, just I've got to get this out. And I don't know how well I'll present it. I don't know whether the conclusions will answer all the questions or whether the conclusions will present more questions than answers. But I think it's an important principle to look at. So this, this, is, what, um, this is what I saw on the, on the internet. And um, I, want you to, I want you to all have a look at that and read it. It's interesting, isn't it? If you can read this, you have a strange mind too. I couldn't believe that I could actually understand what I was reading. The phenomenal power of the human mind, according to a research at Cambridge University, it doesn't matter in what order the letters in the word are, the only important thing is that the first and last letter be in the right place. The rest can be a total mess, and you can still read it without a problem. This is because the human mind does not read every letter by itself, but the word as a whole. Amazing, huh? And I always thought spelling was important. <laughs> now, is there anybody that couldn't read that? Isn't it absolutely amazing that what you have is a jumble of letters that don't make any sense whatsoever, but you can actually read every word. There's one or two that might cause you to struggle, and we could introduce one or two more difficult words. But actually, the principle pretty much holds true that what it says here, that, that, um, that if you have the first and last letter in place, you can actually read the word. So, so the whole thing looks like a jumble, and it isn't. The question is, why? What is it that's actually going on and and of course with that I was looking at a principle because I thought is the there's, there's something about this that that runs deeper than just a yeah that's pretty amazing isn't it because it actually is amazing enough to need to analyze why it is that we can look at that and and actually just read it straight off Pretty much for most people, without any difficulty whatsoever, you can read it as if it was all in the right order. So, so my, my point was this, that, that some sense of the ability to read what life is saying to and about us is essential for holistic development of the human character and being. So, so we have to read life, but life is not tidy and life is not neat. Life is more like that than it is if we were to write all the words exact and precise with all the right letters in the right place. Life doesn't tend to have the letters in the right place. It doesn't tend to dole out for us everything just in the order that we would like to see them in the context that we would then think, oh, life makes sense because that happened and that happened and that happened and this is this and this is this and this is this. But I don't know if you agree with me, but life is more like, if, if our life was written... If we were to take our life and reduce it to a series of letters, our lives would look more like that than it would the actual writing thing. It's, it's right, isn't it? It's, it? it's true, isn't it? So, so the issue is then that there is a, a life lesson here and, and, and being able to read what life is saying to and about us is essential if we're going to have holistic development. I find it interesting that, that when we talk about things like holistic, which means to be made whole, 
um, that when you read this, you can read the whole word, even though the letters are jumbled. So there's a sense that something inside of us, because it has been given certain ingredients as a holistic approach that says, that makes sense to me, even though it doesn't make sense. I, I know what that's all about, even though at first look, I don't know what that's all about. So, so there is a holistic thing that emerges even though it's not readily visible in the text or in what has been presented. So in life, my question is this, could it be that that which we set in place as our first and last determines how we read that which constitutes the middle? See, this is the principle. If you have the first and last letter in the right place, somehow, for some reason, Everything in between that starts to make sense so that it doesn't necessarily correct itself into the right order, but you read it as if everything was in order. You read it as though everything was in its correct place, but actually it's not. Do you understand what I'm saying? So my question is, is this a good lesson about how we read our lives and that what we place as our first and last, the first and last thing on everything, the foundation, the source by which we enter a thing and what we believe to be the conclusion or the power that concludes the thing, if we get those two things right, could it be that even though life is still a jumble, somehow it begins to make sense and we can read it. And when you can read it, you have the knowledge and the information to be able to live out what it is that you have read. So, for example, this I find interesting, our conscious or subconscious starting point and conclusion in our example, it's the first and last that immediately grabs the attention of the mind. And the truth is we do that without consciously choosing to do so. None, none of us in here thought, ah, that's the first letter, that's the last letter so I can make sense of it. You subconsciously Without being informed of what you had to do, you subconsciously chose to see it in a certain way, without consciously choosing to do that. So, so therefore our subconscious and our conscious becomes important as, uh, as the means by which we establish what we understand to be, let's call it the first letter in the thing called our life and the last letter. Where we root the source of where we believe the thing comes from and where we believe that it is going. So there's a powerful principle at work here. Now, I'm going to read some scriptures to you. We don't need to put them on the screen, but I will read them to you because I want you to see that actually you then discover that this principle is actually written throughout scripture. Here's how scripture puts it. First of all, let me give you the overall thing. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 tells us that all things have been made new in Christ. So, so what we know is there is sense in all of this. Some, somehow there is a way that we can see this victoriously. Colossians 1.17 says that Christ holds all things together. And Ephesians 1 verse 10 declares that all things will be summed up or recapitulated in Christ. So, so what it's telling us, if we get this right, when things are summarised, you know what a summarising is? A summary is when you've taken all that's gone, all that's happened, all that's been said, and you say, here's what it meant. Here's what it did. 
This has the power in it. Well, the good news is that all things will be summed up in Christ. I, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm, I'm not just a religious person. I'm not even just a spiritual person. I'm a follower of Jesus and I sincerely do believe in spite of all that we have talked about in the construction of Scripture and the Bible, that it is in Christ that all things will be summed up and brought together. I do believe that he is the Word incarnate, God made flesh, and that in him we see the fullness of God. He is the exact representation of the Father. So, so, so we're, we're talking about things being made new, and we're talking about things summing up. Now, it gets clearer because Revelation 1 verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'll explain these words in a minute. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelations 21 verse 6, he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and Omega. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Alpha and Omega, right? Like the A and the Z, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Revelations 22, 13. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I'm going to read some more things on there. Let me just write these on so that we can mess with these a little bit. So is the Alpha, which is the A, and the Omega, which is, would be our Z. Omega. That's it. Right, the beginning and the end, beginning, end, the first and the last. Can you see how all these are following this model? That you can leave that on the screen, Daddy, rather than the scripture or, or Phil, whoever's there. Leave that, leave that thing up because we might keep pointing at it. Um, so, Alpha and Omega. Now, we can go back into the Old Testament, into the book of Isaiah, verse 6, and it says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob. Listen to me, O Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. So can you see there's something emerging here that says there's something important about first and last. The statement here is not about the bit in the middle. It's saying there's something important about first and last, which suggests to me if you get the first and last okay, then everything in the middle makes sense. So therefore, the problem of our struggle often, even with our spiritual desire for wholeness, is our not getting the first and the last in place. When you get that in place, that's what makes sense of these words. So, Matthew 19, verse 13. Another interesting thing. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first which means you've got to get the first and last in the right order verse 16 of Matthew 20 so the last will be first and the first will be last Luke 13 verse 13 indeed there are those who are last who will be first and those who are first who will be last so we've got this recurring theme this is not every scripture it's a recurring theme and then there's a couple in the book of Hebrews that I, uh, I just want to mention. Hebrews 13, uh, sorry, Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us. 
looking unto Jesus, and here's another way of putting it, the author and finisher of our faith. So, we have now the picture of the author who starts a book and finishes a book. And all the bit in the middle is simply making sense of the start and the finish, right? That's just the story in the middle, but what really matters is the start and the finish. So you need an author, you need a finisher. He says he's the author and the finisher of our faith. So therefore, in the context of our faith journey, we are going to experience this in life. But if we have the first and the last thing in place, it makes sense, okay? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1 through 3 talks about a guy called Melchizedek. Now, again, some, some will believe that Melchizedek is a mythical figure who um, is simply there as a picture of. Others believe that Melchizedek was a, a real person who turned up. Now, if he was a real person, in some ways he would have to be a physical manifestation of Christ, of the Word, in the earth, to Abraham, who he appeared to in the desert. Because this guy came out of nowhere and disappeared into nowhere. But it also suggests that he was something, but then not something. And you'll see what happens here. It says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem, which means peace, and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings. Abraham had just been out to recover something and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem means king of peace. So whoever this person is, he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He is the lord of righteousness and of peace. So whether it's symbolic or whatever... All that matters is we understand that whoever it was appeared to Abraham came to bring righteousness and to bring peace as a gift for Abraham. So, and, but here's what it says, verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. We've got this again, okay? So do you understand why... Trying to understand, is this a mythical figure? Is this a picture? Is this a real person? Because, yeah, there are some aspects that seem to make sense. He was a king and he appeared in the desert. But even what he was a king of is a very spiritually predominant emphasis of the purpose of God in the earth, righteousness and peace. And uh, he has no genealogy. In other words, he came from nowhere as far as genealogy was concerned. You couldn't track him back. He was the beginning of something and he was also the end of something. So, but he was also without beginning of days or end of life. So somehow in here, in this whole mixture of stuff, we have this principle that is helping us see why we can read those words unfolding. And then we have 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45 which says, So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being and the last Adam a life-giving spirit. So I'll just, this is... Going off on a small tangent, uh, tangent, but it still is important because first Adam is how Paul describes Adam in the Garden of Eden. Last Adam is how he describes Jesus, the Christ. Because 
Adam was the beginning of something and Jesus was the end of that something. So understanding this journey, I can then try and make sense of all that goes between, even, even on a, a scriptural level. Now, what is also interesting is, and I've taught you this before, Adam's story did not begin in Genesis chapter 3 in the place that theologians call the fall, which is a term never used in scripture. Um, you know, and, and uh, that was the beginning of what is called original sin, which is a term that's never used in scripture. So when people tell you some of these things and say this is scriptural, the terminologies that they use are not even scriptural. So my question would be, why did we need to invent terms to define something? Because maybe that's not how we should define them. Because for that to happen, you have to start in Genesis chapter 3, which is where the serpent comes and tempts the Eve with the fruit of the tree and blah, blah, blah. And so the story goes on. However, I've told you before, the Bible doesn't begin in Genesis chapter 3. The Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, all the way through to beginning of chapter 2, tells us about the seventh day that God made holy. But on the sixth day, God makes man, and that's in Genesis chapter 1. And it says, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. So, so the idea of we go from original sin in first Adam to penal substitutionary atonement, which Chris has talked about in Last Adam, immediately makes us interpret all this according to what we believed was the beginning and the ending. And my view is now, theologically, we make an utter and complete and total mess of it. Because then we're trying to make things be what I now believe they weren't. I believe actually there was something better, something more beautiful, something more wonderful. But you see, if you start with first Adam and original blessing, then you realise that last Adam was simply restoring what was the struggle here so that the blessing that was on Adam becomes restored in last Adam as another human being, as a representative of the human race, so that this can finish all that and make sense of all that because then we understand the cross as being part of the covenant and that what was happening on the cross was not so much cleansing but covenant and God saying, I promise myself, right? I make a covenant with myself of which you will be the beneficiary, in which you have no part, because what you didn't make, you can't break. So we have this wonderful covenant. So I know that's a bit brief, and some of you won't get what I've said there, but some of you will, to understand that if you start at the wrong place with Adam, you finish at the wrong place with Christ, and therefore all of this means something different so if you start with Adam never separated from God, under the blessing of God, and Christ comes in the projection then as the fulfilment of the covenant to take the pressure off and to deal with the death that came in because of Adam and break the power of death, then again, what I'm trying to illustrate is that your interpretation of everything between there and there will depend on what you think there is first and what you think there is last. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, right, so th there's, there's another one, we, I could do several more but I won't, but another one that I think is important that comes up three times in, I think it's three in the New Testament, is it talks about, these, these are all parts, subdivisions of the same thing, it talks about 
foundation stone, which is Christ. Christ is our foundation stone, and Christ is our capstone. Okay? Now, this is also in some places referred to as the corner, cornerstone, okay? A cornerstone is something you take measurement from to make sure that things line up correctly. So, again, these, this is another example of how important it is to understand Alpha, Omega, beginning and end, first and last, author and finisher, first Adam, last Adam, foundation stone, and the capstone is the final stone that you put in place that holds it all together. So, if you get these right, I mean, I know from my building background, we want to get this and this right. Now, what's interesting, you, you may never have seen it, but now you'll go and look. Um, in York Minster, the... The whichever transept it is, where, where the choir is, you know where the wooden bit is that they call the choir, is it K, K, it's not spelled C-H-O-I-R, something like that, yeah. It's an old English word, but it, it's the bit in the minster where all them wooden seats are that face each other, and the altar at the end, and it's where the, it's where the, it's where the archbishop's seat is, because it's a cathedral, and the cathedral is the throne. In, in that area, if, if, you, if you go in there, and you know the bit that goes from the main part of the minster, the central tower, and you go through the door under the organ into the choir, have a look before you go in and count how many Norman kings there are on the wall. And you'll find that it's uneven. There are things, I mean, I might be wrong slightly, but there's like seven on one side and eight on the other side. So if you then go in through that door and go to the point where you can look up at the ceiling and look at the central roof beam, you'll see that the central roof beam is two foot out, right? About two thirds of a metre out of alignment. Now, if you then step back and look at the pillars that are either side of the organ, you will see the, the, the coving on the pillars that one side has about eight covings less than the other. Why? It's to compensate for the fact that even though it's this amazing historic monument built with all this money that somebody, excuse the phrase, cocked up. And as a builder, I know why they did, because they didn't assess properly the first and the last. Where they started from... And what they thought was the finish, because they had those two things wrong, then they go on and build, but it's not until they've actually got all the walls up and put the roof on that somebody says, that doesn't look right to me. And lo and behold, nobody said, well, let's take it all down and start again. Because the first and last wasn't in place. Now, I'm using that again as a practical illustration to show you what's been in my heart, that actually... We spend too much time trying to unjumble the letters of life. Rather than realising there is actually a spiritual truth at work here, that if you can get what's supposed to be first and put it first, and you can get what's supposed to be last and put it last, then you won't have to unjumble the stuff in the middle because suddenly, although it's still life, now it makes sense. Now there's joy. Now there's peace. Now there's understanding because Christ is in all and all is in him 
And you see that the summary of this thing is summed up not in what life says, not in what you say, but what Christ says. And it becomes a miracle to carry us through life. So, um, so they, these things seem to address several things. The, the, the primary thing that these are addressing is first of all wholeness. In, in the Greek and Jewish mind, um, what these were addressing is wholeness because these were symbolic in culture. Alpha and omega meant that something was whole. If you had the alpha and the omega, it was whole. It's about wholeness. It's not just about one act of something, i.e. salvation. It's about a work of wholeness. Um, it also deals with time um, because we've got beginning and end. Now, I'm going to say a little something about that in a moment. Uh, first and last, it takes into account our struggle with time. It, it also takes into account our struggle with history. And it also takes into account our struggle with rank. That's what, remember when we said about the last will be first and the first will be last. You see, if you don't understand how rank works, then you create the same problem and the same mess. Uh, I'm going to dare to say something a little bit that some might not agree, but... Once the issue of rank turned up in the church, um, you then started to have problems because it's hierarchy. Rank produces hierarchy. And um, having, having looked at a little bit of, of church history, you know, you, people want to make you believe that when certain things were being decided, it's because all these bishops were all in harmony with each other and they all loved each other and loved the kingdom. When you get to the bottom, it, there were still the same petty jealousies and all that stuff that, that goes on today. I mean, you know, you, you only have to look at artistic representations even once you get into the first 100 to 200 years, and particularly when you get into 300 years. Now, all of a sudden, we've got bishops wearing robes and mitres, and it's like, what's all that about? You know, part of the whole thing of dismantling the, the Jewish system of, under the law was to get rid of all that nonsense that goes along with it. What we did was, was in the space of 350 years, made sure that we just reworked all that nonsense and brought it back in. And, um, you know, God bless, the, God bless the Catholics. I mean, love them, some beautiful Catholics, and, but... But when you see the Church of Rome begin to emerge, what you realise is we're back then to, to hierarchy, we're back then to dominance, we're back to control, we're back to vestments and exclusions. And then, of course, we begin to, rather than, you know, when it says that they went from house to house, how many of you know if you went from house to house, you were gathering? Yeah. And then we went from that to this. Even this that we're doing tonight is a, is a reflection of we went from that to this. So now, now we have somebody in authority speaking to those who have no authority in the context of that thing. So the whole model uh, begins to take on a hierarchical thing. And, and so in the same context of what we read here, what we're looking at here, when Jesus said the last will be first and the first will be last, he was actually trying to break the thinking of hierarchical dominance that says, you know, the one who knows the most, the one who has the most qualifications, the one who's got the most theological degrees or is a doctor of divinity, or the one who has a position is the greatest. Jesus said, no, actually, it's the other way around. 
And he said to his disciples, if you want to be, be, be the greatest, you must become the least. That's another of this model. I mean, we'll put that on here if I've got my pen. It's another one of this model. So we go from uh, actually here, we're going to put least and great over here, right? Because you become great by becoming least. So I've flipped that one around just for that reason. So, so can you see that even in the context of rank and social order, this principle is applying through everything. Our spirituality, our understanding, our reading of scripture. It's all about what's important is not the stuff. Now, you know, I've preached to you two or three times uh, when, when, when Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 13 um, says, now these three remain, faith, hope and love, and the greatest is love. And the way I phrased it to you is once you use the term remain, you have to have taken something away. And, and my summary of, of, of Paul is when you strip away everything that's just stuff, important stuff maybe, necessary stuff maybe, but still just stuff, you are left with only three things that truly matter, faith, hope and love. That's the same principle as this. When you strip away what doesn't really matter and you get down to what really matters, in that context, faith, hope and love, and you could say that that's the beginning and the end, it's the first and the last, it's the word in the middle and it's the word that goes on either end of it, love, hope, faith. When you get a hold of that somehow... Somehow life begins to fall into a, another category, which is not that it's all sorted out, but you can read it and it makes sense. And when it makes sense, how many of you know when something makes sense, you, you have a certain feeling of, of contentment. You, you have a feeling of security. You have a feeling of safety, not because it's all worked out, but because somehow now it makes Sense, And when it makes sense, you start to feel a sense of something that, that, that settles you and settles your spirit. So um, let's talk, yeah, it also, it also addresses belief and truth and humanity, that these are all in there. But uh, So the principle in Greek is the Alpha and Omega principle, which is also carried through in Latin. I don't know if you know what the chi ro is. That's not number 22 at, at Fung's Chinese restaurant. The chi ro is that symbol. You know, the one with the, the, one with the funny little... I don't even know which way this goes. Is it that way? It's the one that does that. That, that is a representative... What? That's a representation, that's, that's the symbol used for a lot of church stuff. You know, it's badly drawn because I was never raised in that tradition. But it's the, it's, it's, the, um, it's the principle of Alpha and Omega. So they would even put, sometimes on here, they would put Alpha and Omega in, in these little bits here, okay? Because it was representative, it was the old, the old symbol that you find in many of the catacombs which represented the fact that they were Christians, right? And Alpha and Omega was important to them. So, so, so it's, it's, this principle is important um, in the Greek language as Alpha and Omega, and as I say, carries through to Latin. But what's also fascinating is that in Hebrew, in Hebrew we have the same thing going on, and the, 
The first word of the Hebrew language is Aleph. Aleph. And the, let me make sure I get this right for you. Sorry, that's spelt wrong. That should be that, should be a PH. That's Aleph and Tav. This can be written slightly different in some ways. So, so the equivalent of Alpha in Greek with Hebrew is Aleph and the equivalent of Omega in Greek in Hebrew is Tav. Now, so why is that important? Because in, in rabbinic literature, the word truth is emet, right? That's obviously transliterated into, into English. And the word emet means truth, okay? What's interesting is that the word truth is made up of three letters. It's made up of the letter Aleph, which is the alpha, the first, and it's made up of the letter Tav, which is the last letter. And the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet is put in the middle, but nobody pays any attention to that. Because what is interesting is that the word truth in Hebrew is made up of the first letter and the last letter. The first and the last, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the author, the finisher, first Adam, last Adam, foundation stone, capstone, least, Great. So even way back in the Hebrew language, the word for truth is made up of the first letter and the last letter is the revelation of truth. So there is a principle that runs all the way through from Hebrew to Greek in the scripture and is also adopted in other forms of literature in other societies they used to find this word, that the Hebrews found it mystical. They said that the word emet was a mystical word. The reason it was a mystical word is because they said there is more to it than the sum of its letters. Yeah. And that's because before they ever knew Alpha and Omega, and New Testament scripture saying Alpha and Omega, they were catching something. If you get the first thing right and you get the last thing right, what you finish up with is truth and you interpret life through truth. Now, truth is not always a pleasant experience. Truth is very often a painful experience, but it's an experience that brings us to freedom. So, you know, the, the classic scripture that John wrote, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. There is a freedom that comes. So, so this is cross-linked across all these cultures and all these um, scriptures. Uh, it's interesting as well that this, this word emet was also known by the Hebrews as the seal of God. Not the, ooh, 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 not one of those. The seal of God. Or in other words, God's seal on the whole expression of life in truth comes because of the Aleph and the Tav, the Alpha and the Omega. It seals God into the situation when you understand that. Now, let's say a little bit about time because we can start to think through the Greek mind and say beginning and end means creation and second coming and, you know, sinners going to hell and saints going to heaven. Um, but remember what we said about, about um, the Hebrew view of time and the biblical view of time, that it's not a straight line that starts here and finishes there. It's eternal time. Now, the thing is, it's not that Christ is the beginning here and the end there. 
and it's all just to do with time, it means that wherever you are on here, if we start there, he is the beginning and he is the ending. <laughs> the one person. It's not two events. The whole thing is contained in one. Everything flows from this and to this when you see time as a circle and not as a straight line, which of course eternity, which we live in, eternal time, is aeon upon aeon, age upon age, everlasting to everlasting. So I didn't want you to think that, that this is within the constraints of time, that, that, that being the first and the last is just bound within the framework of human time. It actually has the, the kiss of eternity on it. So all those things about everything being summed up in Christ is not just something that we look for at some future date. It's something that, in essence, in, in, in time and space is a reality because it's bound within this cyclical process. So wherever you start on there, wherever you come in on it, that's always the beginning and the ending. Do you understand that? Which, which I find great, really, because it means that it's not that we're, we're trying to find something that takes us somewhere. It's just if you can understand what comes first and what comes last, you realise that these release us into a flow that helps us understand so many things. We could obviously spend a lot more time talking about time, but we're not going to. So the suggestion would appear to be, if you can just get the true beginning and ending in their rightful place, all the other inserted bits appear in one of several ways. And I'll do this from the screen. And here's how they appear. If you get, I'll say that again, if you can just get the true beginning and ending in their rightful place, all the other inserted bits appear in one of several ways. Number one, of little importance in the view of the whole. So once we've got first and last there, we could say one of the things about that is that, is that all the inserted bits are of little importance in view of the whole. The second thing is that, that all the bits in the middle are important, but not decisive in determining the outcome. Because those middle words are not determining the outcome. Number three, yeah, middle letters. Number three, uh, that they are contributing to and not determining your understanding. Now, I think this is an important point. The middle letters in the middle are contributing to your understanding of the word, but they are not determining your understanding of the word. It's the first and last letter that do that. Now, um, I want to say a couple of things about this in the context of life. How you see every situation in the context of what you perceive is the origin or the source of what is happening to you, and then what you perceive is where that is leading to the end, will determine how you interpret all of life that's happening in the middle. So all the stuff, the anxieties, the confusions, the, 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 the depressions, the, the, um, uh, the anxieties, all that stuff that goes on in the middle there is because where we believe was the source and what we believe will be the outcome it determines how we're interpreting the word in the middle. And this third thing is in interesting as well and I think important that, that in this picture up here on the screen, the words between are contributing to and not determining what the word is. 
what the letters are, sorry. And uh, what I didn't mention at the beginning, for anybody that's listening to this, if you want to see the whole thing, you can find it by Googling. If you simply Google, uh, if you can read this in Google, it will pull up this image that we've got on the screen. So coming back to that, 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 that what's often happening is the letters in the middle, the events in the middle of beginning and end, are determining our understanding, not just contributing to our understanding. So, so, so if you don't get the first and last right, the letters in the middle, the events in the middle, the stuff that happens to you will determine your understanding, not contribute to your understanding. When a thing contributes to your understanding, it makes you read the word correctly because you have the first thing in place and the last thing in place. Now, I'm, I'm going to lead this to the first and last in a couple of minutes. So my great concern... No. Uh, there's another important truth that I just probably ought to mention um, briefly, and that is this, that reading the word by only having the first and last letter are an indicator of something you already know. The psychology of this is that you already know the word that you're about to read. So when you get the first and last letter in place, what happens is that you simply, it's just an indicator to you of something you already know. So you know, for example, on that second line, I couldn't, C-D-N-U-O-L-T, for couldn't, but the reason that you read it as couldn't is because the first and last letter are in place and you already know inside of you, you already know the word couldn't. And so the two words bring it out of you. Right? Now I find this fascinating because we're taught in, New, in the New Testament that by the Spirit of God we already know who we are. We already know all the truth that we need to have we already have the revelation of the kingdom within us. The whole of the new covenant is that you will not have to tell your neighbour, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. There is an inner knowledge. When Jesus was asked, where is the kingdom and when will it come? He said, it's not coming from here and it's not coming from there, but the kingdom of God is within you. So when you get the first and last thing in place, what happens is that you already know something that comes alive when you get the first and last letter in place. And the truth is you already know all that you need to know about the heart, the nature, the character, the power, the presence, the spirit, the revelation of God. You already know it deep inside. When you get the first thing and the last thing in place, you can then understand that because it brings to the fore something you already know. And you go, ah... I can read that easy. Why can I read that? Because the first and the last is in place and what you know then finds its revelation in the middle of that. Okay, so my great concern in bringing this is that whatever we set at the beginning and ending of things will determine how we read them. That's the summary of where we've come to so far. Therefore, when the first and the last are established in the character and nature of God and that God is good, and in the faith in his goodness and faithfulness, the middle should make some kind of sense. So, so we have to somehow in here make the decision 
that we put the character and nature of God ahead of any thinking that we're about to develop about life. We put the fact that he is good as well as being God in there. We put faith in his goodness and his faithfulness and they become the starting point from which we work. That is where we are starting. We have put our faith in that. This is our alpha, right? This is our alpha beginning. This is our foundation that we believe. And when we begin to do that, when we begin to set that in place, uh, then the middle should begin to make some kind of sense because you say, well, what's the ending? The ending is that it is finished. So on the cross, Jesus' last words, it is finished, was saying, okay, we've had a start, we've now got an end, and in between it's all going to make sense because it's finished. So let's just say a few more things and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you my final thoughts on this. Now, this is just a little slight diversion, but not. Abraham is very important to me. It's become a very important character, a very important figure. Now, probably learn more from the life of Abraham than any other Bible character. And it really roots down to the incidents of his life. When we really first encounter him in Genesis chapter 12, it says, the Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's house, and go to a land that I will show you. Now, have you noticed there's a descending order in that? There's a descending order in the circles of influence. Leave your country, leave your people, Leave your father's house. The three circles of influence that will stand in the way of our movement into what really is our, the wholeness to which we are called, what God has called us to and who God has, has called us to be. And the point is we have to work through all of those. It starts with the easiest thing. Could you leave your country? Could, could you leave the widest influence that you can imagine. Could you leave that? And then it said, could you leave your people? Could you leave the, the closer influences that you've had, the things that you probably value, um, the things that have helped you, uh, maybe the religious things that you were raised with, some of the beliefs that you were taught. Could, could you leave that? And then he finishes by saying, could you leave your father's house? Which means, would you be willing to say goodbye to your inheritance? Would you be willing to walk away from the closest connection that you have to, it's not talking about splitting up families, but it's symbolic of saying the, the circles of influence on our life, the circles of influence, how, how willing are we to leave those circles of influence that have come upon us and been imposed upon us? Because it's only by leaving them that we can actually move on to where we need to be. Each one requires the leaving if you're ever going to get to the place to which you are called. And you have to leave all three circles of influence and it's not easy. It hasn't been easy for me and I don't know if I've still finished leaving the circles of influence but I know that I never get to the place that I'm fully called unless I leave all the circles of influence. So there is the beginning which is the call. I have the call. I have in me what I need. And the ending which is go to a land that I will show you and Abraham got up and went not knowing where he was going. The end is, it's finished, I'm confident it's in Christ. And somehow the other stuff then starts to make sense in the context of the whole. He was being called to, um, no, let me, let me do this first. 
each one requires the leaving if you're ever going to get to the place which you were called. I wrote this down, which I think is important. We can be guilty of leaving the wrong thing in place of the thing we truly need to leave. Now, that's very particular for me as a pastor because I, as I've watched people's lives, this is not everybody, um, but it is some people. Some people, instead of leaving what it is that they need to leave to change their lives, leave the church instead. So they leave the wrong thing in place of what it was that they were supposed to leave. Some of the, sometimes it's the, it's the things that we want to hang on to in terms of our historic beliefs. Sometimes it's because people have been challenged about a certain condition in their life. And so they leave the place that challenges them to a place where they won't be challenged. So we leave the wrong thing in place of the right thing. I want you to have courage. I want this to be a house of courage where we where we leave the things we need to leave, right? Because that's what takes us to the place that God is calling us. Abraham was being called to establish a new Alpha and Omega, a new Aleph and Tav, so that a new truth about his life could emerge. There's no doubt in my mind that in some way we are supposed to envisage God and Christ at the beginning of all things and the end of all things if we're to make sense of the middle. So one, one of the, the dangers, I think, in, in our dismantling things is that in the process, somewhere we can actually lose God and we can lose Christ in the process. And we can simply transfer one set of, of, um, of academic belief structures for a different set of academic belief structures. Uh, rather than coming to the place where we realise the whole point of this was not changing our academic belief structures, the whole point of this was to get a greater revelation of God, to set him free from religious constraints, to free him from the box that we put in him, to let him loose from the rules that we applied upon him so that somehow, just like when Christ appeared on the earth, we begin to see a revelation that is not what we expected, but it oozes with the purpose of heaven. It oozes with the purpose of the kingdom. And, and what I don't want us to miss, which we can be in danger of missing, is that what has to be at the, the Alpha and the Omega, what has to be, we have to put God and we have to envisage Christ at the beginning of all things. I see the heart and nature of God. I understand that the, the, the purpose of Christ and his coming and his, 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 his purpose in the earth and, and God becoming man and being fully human. And I have to make that somehow again at the core. So, so you know, Jesus didn't say in the garden, um, I'm not sure what to do, I'll have a think about it. He said, not my will, but your will be done. Not what I want but what you will. Why? Because in this whole context of even Jesus becoming the alpha of a new revelation of the new covenant and becoming the omega, the end of the new covenant, he was very conscious that he had to personally have an expression of the importance of God and the importance of Christ at the core and at the, at the beginning of that and also at the end of it, that in all things and for all things and through all things. So this brings us right back to faith in God, faith in the work of Christ and putting that first in our life and putting that last in our life and I still believe that then helps us to make sense of the whole stuff that actually goes in between. So how do we do that? 
What does it really mean to have God and Christ as first and last? Uh, I don't even know that I have a complete answer to that. Um, by faith, you know, and faith is something that goes beyond our circumstance. Faith is not how you work stuff out. Faith is what you believe and stuff works out because of what you believe, which is a, a paradox and a mystery. It works out because of what you believe. You know, by trust. Um, how many times do we really trust God for a situation and in a situation? How many times have we predetermined what the outcome will be? And I'll trust, trust if that's the outcome that I can get. But not trusting within. And I am by no means one of these people who, you know, uh, God's ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. So, you know, we just, anything that goes on, we, we accept. There are mysteries and struggles in that. Um, in love, trying to find that place in, in, in God's love for us, that we rest into that love. And in resting into that love, we feel secure. Um, by leaving behind, by entering, by embracing fully God with us and God in us and God for us. I, I'm just saying some of the things that, that I think are possibly important with this. And some of you are looking at me like we wanted a proper answer that says, tick this box, fill that form in and do that thing and it works. But, but it is, we are spiritual beings. We, are, we, we get into great difficulty whenever we have encountered uh, law and constitution, we get into difficulty because that's not how the human spirit works. The human spirit works spirit to spirit. Everything is spiritual, which is why in these things you might say, well, if you do this, God will do that. Now, what I'm saying is that if you find that place in God where you have a revelation of his presence and his purpose and he is in the situation that somehow you do start to read things. You do start to see what life is saying and what the story of your life is saying. So we need to be that, not just in a detached religious church view of life, um, but being that in all things, like I say, because if everything is spiritual, then all of this somehow finds a place in our attempt to make sense of the middle bit of life. Uh, probably the great, the great journey of, of all the people that I have respected, and particularly I do respect, was, was rooted that in the middle of their attempts to read what life was saying was their, their incessant desire to see God and find God and know God in it all, whether it's Brennan Manning or, or Richard Rohr or all these heroes that I, I hold. That was their heart in all of it. So you've got Brennan who still struggled with alcoholism, but in all of it he knew, if I can get the first thing right, the last thing right, all this will make sense. And he spends his life, certain, now you might say, but he didn't get his breakthrough on some things, but I would say anybody who can write all those books that he wrote in that way was making sense of something that he was able to convey to us. And so I'll finish with this, that, that one of Brennan Manning's books is called The Signature of Jesus. And the whole, the whole point of the book was, was Brennan saying, I want to be in a place in my life where just like when an artist paints a picture or an author uh, is at a, a book presentation in a, you know, in a bookstore, 
or whatever that that where the author can say, I'm happy to sign my name on that picture. You know, the, 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 the artist puts his name on, he puts his signature, or the writer of the book presents the book to you and they're happy to put their signature in because they're proud of what it is that, that is presented in that. And, and Brennan's thing was in all of the journey is I want to live life in such a way as I look for God, as I look for the purpose of Christ in my life, where God would be happy to write his signature on my life and say, I did that. And I believe he does, and I believe he is, but I believe that it's in that journey that actually as we begin to get that first, that we, we begin to make sense truly of, of, of all the stuff that's, that's going on in the middle. Now, if you say, does that mean I'll be incredibly happy? I don't know. I don't know whether happiness has anything to do with it, whether, whether happiness is as genetic as, you know, the height that you grow to and the weight that you put on or don't put on, I don't know. You know, some of those things, we, we, we're looking for the wrong thing in the word. Purpose is the key thing. And finding within it, not just purpose, but peace within all of that, that doesn't just make us a walkover of, oh, well, we just have to accept anything and everything because, you know, uh, bless God. But it does help us within that, I believe, to have the wisdom and the understanding to say, I know what this is saying. And probably in my life, I probably know more what things are saying now than I ever did in my life. And, and yet there's probably more disruption in me uh, and more emptiness and, and feeling less rather than more. And yet somehow there is an understanding of how this is working out, how this is panning out. The only thing I need to do with that is be willing not to be held by those circles of influence so that you can walk from that and find the wholeness and the life. Anyway... That's, uh, that's it, I think. So I told you I didn't know whether we had a conclusion to this, but I think it's a great thing to talk about. Anyway, um, if anybody's got any little bits, we're, we're okay for time. If anybody's got anything would like to add, I think would contribute to the conversation, or you have a question about what's been said, then we've got a few minutes that we can just deal with that, if there is anybody. Just can, do you want to be, Mike, hang on, hang on Debbie, then everybody can hear what the, there you go. I didn't quite understand how the, the emit linked with the Aleph and the Tav. And how, I know you, how which bit linked? I'll look at it, the first thing, the, the Aleph and the Tav with the emit. Oh, the top. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that word emet is the English version because I can't write Hebrew, okay? So the Hebrew word translated into English is, is emet. But if we were to write that word in Hebrew, it would have the letter aleph and it would have the letter tav. Now, of course, Hebrew doesn't have our, whatever we call these letters, phonetic type letters. Hebrew, of course, has... has, has uh, symbols as a Middle Eastern language. So that's how that works, Debbie. That, that's just the English word, which means truth. But actually, if you wrote it in Hebrew, you would simply write the word. Most of them would just write the letter Aleph and the letter, the letter Tav. And the, because, because there's A-L-E-P-A. Yeah, yeah. Aleph 
Yeah. We're really clever because we said, let's call A, A. <laughs> and let's call Z, Z. Too simple for the Greeks and the, you know, let's call the first letter, let's call it Alpha. Let's call the last letter Omega, you know. So we, we're actually a much brighter in that respect. And, and the same with Hebrew, you know, they have all these, these long words. Each letter is a, is a long word like that. Yeah, every letter is a word. So, yeah, that's a good question, Debbie. Thanks for asking that. Are you okay? Is that? Yeah. Any more for any more? Pete. Just a quick one, really. Um, we talked about the first and letter being in the right place, but the first three words in that statement don't follow that principle. Yeah, with the Phi U yeah. is not first and last. It's just wrong. So are we talking? Yeah, first one's only got two letters, but the the, the, so the opposite order. way around. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah. 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 It's the it's the way your brain works, but. Uh, I, I would also say, Chris and, Chris and I have this conversation all the time, that um, uh, there are very few things that are absolute principles about ev anything. When, when you actually break anything down, the, the general principle is, I, I could show you some other exceptions to the rule because there are, there are some other words that you would find more difficult to read using this principle. But the general principle is what I wanted to get across to you rather than analysing the whole wording of it. So it's not bad if we've only got three or four words in the whole thing. I mean, what, what fascinates me is the fact that you all just sat there and read it, which is, which is brilliant. It's amazing. How did you come across the amph? Was it just random? Or it's that wonderful thing called Tinterweb. Browsing for some particular somebody, analogy or somebody posted it on uh, Facebook. So it, it um, you know it's again one of those timely things that just it just intrigued me because I I find myself I get fascinated with principles. I think, huh, why does that work? How does that work? And what is that telling me about the human mind? What is that telling me about the psyche? Uh, how does that cross-connect with, with then other aspects of life? Is there, are there lessons that can be learned? Because if it's true in this sense that that's what the mind does and, and, and the intellect, then what does the mind do in the intellect when we put other things in that way and we begin to understand, like I said, the principle of, of, of first and last? How, how does that then work? That, that's why my mind grabs onto these things. He's here. He's here. Um, I just wanted to say something that we'd mentioned as we chatted through today, that when we're talking about what we understand about the first and the last um, in the context of what we believe about God, and I know you covered a little bit of that tonight, but if, if we've got a very poor understanding of, of God and we believe that he's particularly angry or whatever or or I don't know that will then dictate mm. 
the, the middle bit because even when it comes to what we feel is happening to us uh, in the context of circumstances, experiences, um, we're going to say, well, this is God's will. Because I know you didn't, bring it, you didn't bring that into it yeah. tonight, and I know we don't talk about that a lot here, but um, we would say, well, this must be God's will for my life if it's a particularly difficult thing because he's testing me, he's trying to prove me and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. If we've got a particular view of God in the beginning and also yeah. how it finishes, so that even in the context of heaven and hell and, uh, you know, that, that, that whole situation... And, and I just felt that for me, as you've been talking, it's like how when you talk about how do we make sense of the middle, um, I have to put it in the context. What is it that I believe about God, his character and nature? Um, and on the basis of that, let that be what is constantly flowing through all that is going on, which gives me a sense of... Um, a security even in the insecurity of the unknown because you trust um, yeah. the goodness, like you yeah, said, the goodness, goodness of God. So sorry if that was a whole... No, no, I think... Mangledness, I'm sorry. No, and I, again, I, I think part of, um, part of our endeavours here has been to try and reshape the, the question, who is God? You know, because if, if God is the first and the last question then becomes but who is God who is who is God in your view because that is going to determine how you read everything so so the fact that so many of us are raised with the idea we might not put it in these terms but but these best summarize it the gods are angry the gods must be appeased that 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 God is displeased and there is a coming judgment means that everything that you think about God is determined by your first and your last, how you read the bit in the middle. So, so it becomes difficult to get what is for me that, that, that true understanding of the character and nature of God. And also for me means you have to distort the image of Christ to reinforce the image of the God that we have created and really, there are many conflicts. Like I said, one of the things that really affected me was if, you know, if, if Jesus asked us to, to love our enemies and forgive, um, and forgive without, without any change or regard, you know, if, if, if your brother sins against you 70 times seven, what do you do? You forgive him, right? But then, but then God as judge was not going to forgive people in his love, then you have a conflict. You have to distort the image of Christ in order to reinforce what I think is that pagan image of God. So, so what I'm saying there is what Chris said is right, that, and which is why I, I, I'm done very well at it, but I'm, it's what I'm trying to say, that God is the first and the last. You have to have within the whole framework an understanding of God. God is love in the beginning. God is love in the end. He is faithful in the beginning. He is faithful in the end. And then the other nonsense, you know, some of you have been through all kinds of stuff. Some of you have lost kids, you know, um, and you're still here. Some are struggling now, like dear old Jenny and the family with the brother-in-law who's, you know, a sister 
having lost one husband who dies suddenly, now got another husband who, without a miracle, is, is very sick. And, and you think, well, what I can't do on that is just have that other crazy image of God that I think is incorrect of what I call the sovereignty of God syndrome. God is sovereign. God can do whatever he likes because that to me is a scary God. Um, you know, it's a God who on a whim and a fancy, um, just indiscriminately, you know, and I've told you my struggles. I, I was raised in testimony meetings where we gave testimony, you know, the Lord was really good, you know. Um, you know, there was a car accident in front of me and seven people died, but, but I just want to praise the Lord I was delivered. Now, there's truth in that, but then I start to ask the question, but what about the seven people in the car in front? So, you know, you get among a group of believers who things are okay and everybody goes, oh, that's wonderful. We just, bless God, you were preserved. Um, but like, what about the other seven? What did God think about those other seven? You know, and then, of course, you have to start thinking, what have they done? And then you make it something that they deserved. And then by that, you make it something you didn't deserve. And then by that, now you've come to the place of my, my, my position before God and how God loves me and my spirituality and my spiritual journey must be so good that, that God preserved me, but he killed them suckers because they obviously are God rejectors. And you see how you get into all kinds of issues and problems. And that's why what I'm, I'm not bringing a message that says, get this right and all your problems will be solved. I'm saying you get this right and somehow you start to make sense of some of the nonsense. And, and somehow as well you can come to peace about some stuff and do that wonderful thing that, that was never a part of my church life growing up. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I was never an answer. Nobody ever said to me, I don't know. We, we always had some answer from, you know, and, and for me, you know, um, manipulative answers. You know, if I, if I ask somebody who I respect, you know, why has this person died of cancer? And they say, oh, you know, because God, God is sovereign and he knows what he's doing. That, that's you shut down straight away because it would seem arrogance to say to the person, that's not a good enough answer for me. And, it, and all it does is poses more questions about God than it does about the person who just died of the cancer. Now I've got more questions, not less. And all because we were just afraid to say, I don't know. And, and I've learned, I've always wanted to have all the answers for everything. And, you know, it makes you look as though you know something, yeah, whether you do or you don't. Um, and sometimes the hardest thing for us is to say, I don't know. But there's something very releasing about, I don't know. You know, the, there's stuff about life I really don't know. So, so I think sometimes we've tried in our doctrine to, to do stuff that says, do this and it'll fix everything. And then, you know wear eye masks to all the other stuff when actually we're better saying, you know what, I know some stuff and some stuff I don't know, but what I do know is that my responsibility is to put God first and last and in putting God first and last, then somehow I can make sense. Somehow I can read something that is wonderful. I believe that's where the true revelation of God, you know, begins to come in. You begin to see the bigger picture and, and, and a greater revelation. Anybody else got anything you want to add or ask? Just thinking a spell checker would love that. Computer can't recognise it, couldn't read it, so it would just say it's all wrong. Imagine what 
what message you might give you, Peter. For... I'll try it. I'll type it in when yeah. you get home. Type it in when you get home. Because we've all had those little disasters where, you know, we, we didn't check what we'd written and uh, predictive text decided what you wanted to say. And, you know, now you've just destroyed a lifelong relationship by your abusive text that you've... Well, I hope this has been uh, helpful, at least at least in getting you thinking. My objective tonight was was not um, to give you a complete solution to this, but actually to open the thing up so you can think some more. Because I think these these are fascinating um, fascinating fascinating anomalies of of life that that really are so true and yet so mystical in a sense, you know. And yet and yet in them there's there's life. I think this is as much scripture tonight as scripture is scripture, you know, in the context of speaking to us and helping us to understand God. So I bless you, I bless you, and, uh, and uh, we'll hopefully see you on Sunday. Yes. Super. All right. Part two Sunday, because this, 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 this connects a little bit, which I didn't mention, this, this does cross-connect in in many ways to what we're talking about on Sunday with the heroic journey and what we talk about Sunday, the crisis of limitations and then wisdom's journey um, in, that, in that this is all, this is another way of looking at that process of life, you know, and how it, how it all works out. So looking forward to Sunday and uh, going on to the next step of that. So there you go, we're done. We are done. <laughs> <laughs>